0: Hello and welcome to Banter, the official podcast of the American Enterprise Institute. I'm Phoebe Keller, the head of AEI's media department, and I'm here with AEI President Robert Dorr. We'll be your Banter co-hosts. Each week, we'll take you inside our think tank for conversations with leading policymakers and thinkers about today's pressing policy issues. Thanks for tuning in. Joining us today on Banter is Brad Wilcox, who's a non-resident senior fellow with us at AEI, where he directs the Home Economics Project, which began in 2013 and explores the links between family and the economy. He's also a professor of sociology at the University of Virginia, where he directs the National Marriage Project, and a senior fellow at the Institute for Family Studies. He's been a research fellow associated with Yale University, Princeton University, and the Brookings Institution. He's the author of When Marriage Disappears, The Retreat from Marriage in Middle America. Thanks for joining us on Banter, Brad.
1: Great to be here this morning, Phoebe.
2: Phoebe, I, I'm very happy that we have Brad with us. He and I have worked together for a long time. When I first came to AI eight years ago, he was one of the very, very first scholars that we did things together on and, on our, and our work intersects. And so this is one scholar who I actually may know something about their subject matter expertise. Uh, and so I'm really pleased to have Brad with us this morning. And I and I did want to say uh, start out by by asking Brad, you know, Phoebe, we lost a really great uh, American scholar this year in Sarah McClanahan, who was a sociologist at Princeton. And she did work in the area that Brad and I work on concerning families and family formation. And, uh, Brad, I wondered if you just tell tell Phoebe and tell our listeners what was so great about Sarah and, and what was the key to her work?
1: Yeah, thanks, Robert. Uh, Sarah McClanahan was my, you know, my mentor at Princeton and family scholarship. Um, I had a, a seminar with her at Princeton. She was one of my dissertation advisors. Um, and, you know, she was, I think, striking in a number of respects. She was, I mean, very kind of, uh, uh, you know, very attentive to her graduate students, including me in helping us to kind of get our um, our scholarly careers launched. Uh, but I think beyond that, she was kind of exceptional in her um, commitment to open inquiry and to, you know, intellectual freedom. I can remember both in kind of in the seminar that we had, I was really the only conservative, you know, weighing in on family issues. And, you know, she made it very clear that my voice was welcome at the table. And I think she was actually pleased to have someone kind of raising some different perspectives, you know, in the seminar context. So that was kind of a, a fresh um, experience at Princeton, I had another <laughs> professor at Princeton, whose name will remain nameless, who kind of encouraged me after I was participating to be more, quote, reflexive about my <laughs> my perspective. <laughs> that was, you know, she was trying to trying to actually encourage me to sort of not <laughs> articulate uh, a dissenting perspective. So Sarah was very different from that. Mm-hmm. And of course, I think what was also important about Sarah was that she really was committed to kind of following the, the data where it would take her. And, you know, she was, of course, a a divorced single mother in the 70s, went to grad school at UT Austin, then went to teach at at Wisconsin and then Princeton. And in the course of doing research, you know, year after year after year on family structure, came to realize that the impact of single parenthood on kids could not be ascribed just to money, but also to some of the dynamics that follow from, you know, from having single parent families in terms of family instability, in terms of kids being exposed to more you know, moves from one home to the next, um, you know, the absence of a father, these were all kind of points that she came up with in her research and she was you know, honest about kind of the way in which single parenthood you know, affected kids. So I think her intellectual honesty and her really bravery in articulating a perspective that was not always you know, popular among her peers, um, was, uh, something to be noted and, um, and appreciated about Sarah. So a uh, lot, lots, yeah. lots of one could say, but yeah. she, she really was, she like,
2: was, um, uh, Phoebe, she was also this lovely, uh, I have a feeling she was from the South or from Texas. So she had these wonderful manners.
0: Mm-hmm. She was,
2: I went and visited her when I was first appointed to a position in, in family policy in New York state. And she took me under her wing and she introduced me to her graduate students.
0: Mm-hmm. And,
2: um, and as Brad says, she's definitely a, a, a you know a person of the left who wrote this really seminal work that said um, the impacts on children of single parenthood are serious and need to be taken into account and are not only about the economy or poverty, but are about the absence of two parents there for the long haul. And that was uh, you know just a decisive piece of literature that Brad and I could cite and others could cite about why. We should do more to encourage married two-parent families and not ignore that dynamic in the proper um, raising and developing of children. Um, she And she admitted it. She stood up to it. She didn't back down from it. When the data showed her that that's what her conclusion should be, she she went with it. Um, I remember when I was at one of these seminars that Brad and I have to go to, Brad much more than me, surrounded by all these academics. And and Sarah was not there. And um, someone was was really con- concerned and un- uncertain and confused and about why is it that the, the uh, rate of, of getting married before you have children among college-educated women was so high, 90% plus, while the rate of you know, high school or less educated women getting married before they have children was, was so low. So the, the vast majority of children in those types of households were in single-parent households. And there was some, why are, they, why are they, these practices so divergent? And I blurted out, uh, because the, the, the less educated women haven't read Sarah McClanahan. <laughs> and uh, I got a little laugh to that because they thought I was so naive. And, um, but I love Sarah McClanahan, and I know Brad did too. So it's a good way to start, a reflection on a scholar who we both admired. Uh, we didn't agree with her on everything, but she was uh, true to herself and, and true to the data. Um, and she's also just a lovely uh, honest, decent person. So we miss her very much. Um, so, uh, Brad, let's just talk about that. Are, do, you, do you feel that the 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 it's it settled across, settled in America that um, and in that uh, children do better in two parent married families? Are, are you feeling good about that settlement on that that concept, or are we still have people to persuade?
1: Uh, yeah, Robert, you know, on the one hand, I think the science is, is extraordinarily clear on this. In fact, there was a, a an edition of The Future of Children that Sarah McClanahan, you know, edited in 2015 that kind of published a review of the literature on family structure, marriage, and child well-being, just sort of underlining all the ways in which kids benefit from having two married parents. So I think, you know, the science is is actually great on this particular topic, but I think, you know, the culture continues to move um, in elite you know, sort of precincts to the left. And so I think it's, it's often hard to articulate that truth in, you know, many, uh, academic, you know, public policy and journalistic circles. Um, so that's I thing, that's the challenge that we continue to face, um, that there's a kind of disjunction between elite culture here, um, and, and the science, you know, um, but,
2: but the irony is that the elites act right, but but talk left. Is, is, that, you exactly, that, yeah, phrase, no, is that a phrase you right. use?
1: Yeah. So I, I often talk about the way in which our elites talk left on family issues, but walk right. So, you know, what we see in the data is that about 90% of kids in the upper two quintiles, the top 40% of households are living in married families with the two parents unfortunately, only about two-thirds of kids in sort of the, the bottom 60% of our, of our country, you know, have that same uh, privilege. Um, so, yeah, there is this kind of, I think, tension um, where our elites, I think they're trying to signal their progressive, you know, uh, sort of credentials in terms of how they talk about family in public, but when it comes to sort of how they organize their own lives in private they recognize that marriage and kind of an intensive parenting ethic redound to the benefit of their kids.
2: And it's not as if they won't uh, tell people how to behave in other contexts, <laughs> no, that how to yeah, organize their life, or sure. know, what to believe. And um, but anyway, it uh, isn't. It is, a, it is a, an interesting issue, and and we can get back to this issue of single parenting and the numbers and, and the extent to which um, um, lots of people, both single single women and also married women are not having babies to the extent they used to. So the number of children who are in circumstances being raised by a a lone parent is not as great or as great as we thought it was going to be. Uh, But before I come back to that, I want to talk about something uh, that that has also been concerning you of late and really where I've seen a lot of your work being directed. And that was toward um, often married families. And let's just take a a married family uh, with maybe lim- not much uh, post-high school education, um, living in Dubuque or Indianapolis or Queens or wherever, um, couple kids, both incomes b- below, you know, in the $50,000 range, not high, um, but combined income getting close to $100,000 uh, or even as high as that. Um, these families struggle too, uh, I think you believe. And I wanted to ask you, what does the federal government need to do for them?
1: Yeah, it's a great, you know, I think, question, Robert. And I think um, conservatives haven't always been attentive to this sort of dynamic. So what we see, you know, for instance, in the work of Richard Reeves and his colleagues at Brookings is that you kind of look at, you know, household income trends. The folks in the top quintile, the top 20 percent, have seen their real income rise by about 100 percent. Um, since the late 1970s, and because we've actually been more generous in many of our means tested programs, we see the lowest quintile have seen their real income rise, you know, in real terms by about 80%. So, you know, it's kind of, you know, interesting, striking, but the middle class, the folks right in the middle, have only seen their income rise by about 40%. So kind of relatively speaking, their incomes have been going up more in a more sort of stagnant um, way. And when it comes to sort of affording, as, as you know, things like education, when it comes to affording things like, you know, housing, um, some of these bigger ticket items, you know, they can, I think, you know, feel more stressed and strained. And so, you know, I think one of the ideas that we've all been talking about in the last year and a half or so is, you know, can we think about a way in which a child allowance or an expanded child tax credit could be helpful to American families and particularly to these families in the middle and working class? who have seen their incomes, you know, grow in a much more stagnant fashion than those at the top of our income ladder. And even those are, you know, kind of- So,
2: so staying with this family, no. this type of family, sure. um, yeah. you know, 50,000 each in income, uh, approaching $100,000, couple kids. I acknowledge, you know, costs are expensive, things are tough. I was a family similar to that you know, with Sarah and me when we had a couple kids. But when you're talking about a child allowance or a child a tax rate, you're really talking about a, a, a tax cut. Is it a tax cut? Or would you go so far as to eliminate their federal tax obligation, leaving Social Security and Medicaid aside, Medicare aside, um, their federal income tax obligation so they were getting a refundable tax cut that went, that went down and then erased their tax burden and then it ended up being a, a, a payout to them? Because the, that was created for lower income families to support earnings at the bottom. And are you extending that theory of using the tax code to provide actually over and above their tax burden? Or are you just, is this just another tax cut for the middle class?
1: Yeah, no, I would, I'm I'm supportive of, you know, obviously it's going to depend upon, you know, where their income exactly falls. But I'm certainly supportive of, you know, targeting working and middle class families with, you know, something like, you know, $300 per child, um, you know, for kids at least six and under, you know, to help them. Um, with the costs of, you know, child care or, you know, juggling work and family, as well as sort of the costs attendant to raising kids today. So, um, so yeah, I mean, I'm certainly in favor of doing something to kind of give them more financial, um, you know, resources to, um, to raise kids and also kind of to signal that we as a society, we as a country, um, recognize that the work that they're doing and raising the next generation is is so important to, um, you know, to America. So that, that's sort of one. But I would also kind of would say that it's important too that we have to understand and appreciate that the left I think has a very clear agenda um, on this question of families and, and sort of care for the youngest kids. You know, Senator Warren, even, you know, uh, President Biden, his his administration have been very clear in sort of saying that the way they want to address the sort of financial challenges that many middle working class families are facing is to give them free or effectively very low cost child care. And, you know, no recognition that most American parents don't want to place their kids in institutional care. Most American parents would prefer either that one parent. takes care of those young children or that, you know, a grandparent, for instance, takes care of, of those kids. And so I'd much rather that we kind of, you know, um, give families some kind of child allowance that allows them to make the best choice for them and their kids and not to kind of privilege uh, a kind of one size fits all model that people like Senator Warren and even President Biden, I think, are really kind of, um, you know, yeah, getting to I- mind.
2: Yeah, that's an important. Uh, let's talk about the data or what you find about the differences in outcomes for children where one of the parents uh, is able to stay home or the child care is provided in an informal, more home-like setting versus a, in, a, in an organized institutional daycare. Uh, do you, do you, what's, your, what's your take on that?
1: You know, so it's important to, you know, acknowledge here that there's obviously I, I think I think, frankly, the science is pretty subtle when it comes to sort of the importance of stable marriage for, for kids. I think when it comes to sort of the science about sort of child care and kids outcomes, there's a kind of a more robust debate. Um, but as I read that that literature, what I see is that, you know, kids kind of in, particularly in that first year of life in kind of an infancy, so to speak, um, really benefit from having an intense, um, you know, connection with their primary caregiver, which is usually their mom. And so, you know, by contrast, um, kids, particularly infants who spend more than 30 hours, you know, a week in some kind of institutional care setting, um, are more likely to experience, you know, social and emotional problems, you know, down the road. Um, Toddlers who go to, you know, institutional care have higher levels of cortisol, which is, of course, a stress hormone. So there is a kind of, I think, an emotional and social risk that we see with placing, you know, infants and and young children in extensive uh, non-family care, you know, outside of the home. And so I think public policy should be geared towards giving families the ability to choose to have, you know, one parent at home or, you know, again, having a grandparent um, you know, care for uh, young kids at home as well as as an option.
2: Yeah. And yeah. I, and you know, I want to just in sure give my perspective in the public assistance co- context, you know, in providing childcare aid um, to low income Americans, including lower middle class Americans, I've always supported the voucher or the cash assistance of some sort that lay people some choices as opposed to the requirement that they attend a certified daycare center. It just gave the families more options. Um but uh, but again, going back to those middle class families, you know, with those incomes, it this this tax benefit, which is what it is, or right, sure, um, which could eradicate their income tax burden completely, yeah. right, um, not do away with payroll taxes, is in part intended so that if they wanted to, they'd be more likely to choose to have one of the parents stay home. Is that is that right?
1: Yes, that's def- that's definitely correct.
2: Yeah. Okay. Yeah. All right. So now let's turn just for a second on that to the another kind of family, which, as you know, among low-income Americans, is more likely to be the type of family we're talking about, and that is a single mom, absent father, not in the picture, not residing with the mother, um, and uh, receiving various forms of public assistance. And here again is what's the data show about that kind of family and daycare versus being allowed to stay home because they receive a cash benefit.
1: Yeah, so it is the case that sort of the story about childcare does vary by you know both class and family structure. So it looks like kids who are being raised in lower income single parent homes are more likely to benefit from having some kind of you know um, high quality you know childcare uh, outside the home. And so so it's an important you know caveat to the research that I just mentioned. You know to just sort of acknowledge that it looks like. Um, things like, you know, pre-K and uh, things like child care more generally um, can be more beneficial for kids who are in lower income single parent households. Yeah. So that's that's an important qualification.
2: Yeah. And, and how have you done in making the argument that different types of families should be treated differently by the tax code or by government policy?
1: Well, I mean, this is where I think, you know, We've had, obviously, a a kind of a a robust debate. I mean, I've been supportive of, for instance, on the child tax credit, you know, Romney's plan to kind of basically give a very simple child allowance to, you know, almost all American families and kind of, again, let families decide um, how they're going to use that allowance. Um, But I think there are others like yourself, Robert, who would like to sort of, you know, if we're going to have some kind of expanded child tax credit to kind of reserve it for working families. And, you know, that would be a different way of handling this. And then you would still have, you know, TANF and other programs, including, you know, childcare subsidies going to, you know, assist, um, you know, lower income families often headed by a single parent in ways that would allow them to, you know, still get assistance, but often also, you know, um, place their young kids in childcare and maintain some kind of connection to the workforce.
2: So Phoebe, I want to bring you in here. What question do you want to ask Brad about this sort of this sort of intellectual discussions of public policies that try to direct families or incentivize families to care for their children in one way or the other? What what's your what, what question comes to mind, or what comments yeah. do you want to
0: make? Well, I wanted to ask. Um, I know there's been a lot of coverage over the past week from the January jobs numbers about how much more challenging it's been for women to get back into the workforce after COVID and Omicron. And a large part of that does seem to be the school issues and kids continually being sent home. But I'm wondering if COVID um, and those jobs numbers specifically, how those play into your thinking about um, whether women would prefer to stay home or would like to always have a childcare option, um, just because we are seeing that gap widen.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think you know, COVID's been kind of a shock to the system for everyone, but particularly for you know American mothers. And there's certainly, I think, some mothers you know who have been extraordinarily frustrated about the um, kind of inability of, of schools and childcare centers just to kind of um, provide in-person education and care to their young kids. Uh, at the same time, we have seen in kind of the in the polling data, there is a growing share of moms with kids at home who would prefer to have more at-home work options for them, which kind of allow them to have you know, a foot in the household um, on the one hand, but also a foot in the workplace as well. And then kind of more generally, what we do see in, the, in this research is that kind of the most popular option for American moms is part-time work. And I think both kind of businesses and uh, policymakers and just the culture at large, including kind of the more elite journalists who tend to weigh in on these issues, I think could do more to kind of just acknowledge that there are tons of moms out there who would like to see good part-time options available to them um, that do allow them to kind of um have again a foot planted in both the sort of family and work worlds um, yeah
2: i have to jump in here a little bit um because both of you made this mistake the caregiver does not have to be the mother brad or maybe maybe you think it does i i don't know i mean Seems to me the key ingredient is that there be that that there may be a benefit from having a parent, but it could be the dad, right? There's an area where you don't want to incentivize one parent over the other, or do you?
1: No, I mean it's true, Robert, but I think it's, so. Yes, I think we're not going to have you know a requirement that it's it's the mother who's the one working part time, obviously, or or at home. But I think it's important to also not you know kind of shy away from just the truth, which is that when you kind of do polling on this, including New York Times did a poll on this a number of years ago you know, there are, you know, dads who like to be at home full time and there are obviously plenty of moms who want to be working full time. But on average, what you see is that women are more likely to prefer uh, the part-time option. Dad's more likely to prefer the full-time option. So I, I think that's just also part of the mix and we you need to kind of be frank about that too.
2: Yeah, and I, I can hear my wife saying, yeah, Robert, it's, when we made our decision, we had three kids. Sarah was a Harvard graduate, far more accomplished and capable than me, would clearly have better income potential, uh, if you were evaluating us honestly, uh, but uh, it was she that decided to withdraw from the labor force and stay home with our children for 12 years. And, you know, we've regret we from our income standpoint, there have been many times when we've regretted that. But um, on the caregiving side, it was just it just it, I can hear women saying, don't be giving me that. It's always going to be us. You know, you guys are just never going to do the dishes or the diapers or anything. You just are incapable I don't know if that's really true. Robert, I don't don't
1: think that is true, right? I think, you know, the point is just that I think we have to acknowledge too that women's perspective on this, again, you know, is not uniform. I mean, there's there's no, when I look at both my, my students, you know, parents' perspective and when I look at kind of the data, there's no singular woman's perspective. There's no majority support for one model. At the same time that we do see that women are relatively more likely to prefer to be working part-time or to be at home. And my my wife, too, she graduated from UVA in Columbia. You know, she's well-educated, obviously, but for a period in her life was at home with our kids, you know, because we have, you know, a, a big family. And so that was important for her and for our family. So we have to just, I think, make space in our public conversation for, you know, this reality, but also for the pluralistic character of both women's and men's preferences
2: on this. So let's talk about the birth dearth. Uh, Are you concerned about that? And are some of these policies intended to help us return to having more children?
1: Yeah, I'm obviously very concerned. Um, the American fertility rate was about 1.64, um, you know, kids per woman on average in uh, in 2020. It was a you know a record low, and it kind of put us in the same kind of bracket that we saw with Japan in the late 1980s. Before Japan fell, obviously to about 1.2, it's come up in Japan a little bit since then. But I mean, if if we don't kind of pull out of this kind of, kind of A falling fertility trajectory, you know, it's going to put, I think, a major stress uh, on our economy, but, you know, more importantly, too, I think, on sort of the social and familial fabric of our country. You know, we're talking about, you know, families without siblings, talking about people without, you know, grandkids and, you know, aunts and uncles and cousins. um, And, you know, we're going to have a world where, um, there are a lot of what are called bare branches in the Far East, and that is adults with no kin in their lives. Mm-hmm. And that's just kind of a world that I, I think is, is really quite inhumane. So, yeah, I'm concerned about this. And I do think that our country needs to be a lot more aggressive in thinking about both public policies, but also kind of cultural messages that would make us more attentive to the value of both marriage and
2: childbearing. Yeah, I, I, you know, you can't watch anything on television or movies or streaming that- in, that's produced in the last 10 years that doesn't, um, or I should say again, that celebrates the, the sort of two-parent married family or, or doesn't in some way uh, celebrate different choices that, that don't lead to children. Or there seems to be a lack of, of it seems to me every time you hear about kids in the popular culture, it's, they're always portrayed as a hassle, a pain, a difficulty, a burden, course they were the greatest gifts Sarah and I ever got but and I'm sure that's how you feel too and I'm sure that's how the families that the family the Phoebe comes from feels too but it is a real pro it is a real problem I mean you just you know the cultural icons it's, it's not it's not parents anymore um at all as far as I can maybe I'm overstating it no
1: I think Robert But obviously there are exceptions I mean there there are there are happy families on pop culture but I think. You know, what What I do see when I when I you know look at TVs and movies, for instance, is kind of this idea that the 20s, for instance, are the decade for, you know, for fun, for professional achievement, you know, all that kind of stuff. Um, and not for, you know, getting started on the family front. And, you know, also you look at Pew data, what you find is that most young adults think that their job, their work is going to be their primary fulfillment. And no one kind of understands and appreciates that, in fact, the, the data, the empirical reality, you know, it is not consistent with that kind of more workist mentality. What we see is that today, young adults, adults more generally who are married, married with kids are happier than their single childless peers, that marriage is a better predictor of happiness than you know, your job status, that your job quality is not as important as your marital quality. So, you know, Aristotle said that we're social animals, Robert, and, you know, I think too many Americans don't appreciate that your family and your friends end up being a lot more important for you than, you know, the degree on your wall or the money in your bank account or the kind of job that you do. And so we should be, I think, doing a lot more to encourage young adults to sort of think about marriage and parenthood in, in their 20s, um, rather than to kind of always put the premium on um, on, on work. Hmm.
2: Now the issue with that that I read about comes up is that's all very nice, Brad, but you got to find the right guy, or another <laughs> way of saying it, you got to find the right person. And um, let's talk about men. Uh, are they? Are, are what's happening there? And also, uh, wh- what is your what is your take on on the role of fathers in children's lives? And and are are we doing a good job being good fathers in America these days?
1: Uh, Yeah, great question, Robert. We're actually having a a scholar, Carol Hooven from Harvard, come to UVA tonight to talk about kind of, you know, reviving some kind of model of masculinity for the 21st century. And it couldn't be more timely because, as you know, you know, boys are struggling in many of our schools. Uh, We see a big gender gap in our colleges, about 15%, you know, just just (laughs) ginormous. Um, And as, you know, um, our colleague Nicholas Eberstadt has pointed out, you know, we're just seeing an incredible number of men not, you know, uh, gainfully employed in today's economy. So, you know, a lot of men, you know, outside of the elite precincts in, in, in Washington and in the C-suite and Fortune 500 companies. There are right?
2: elite precincts in cities all across America, Brad, yeah. not only well, in Washington. <laughs> well,
1: and yeah, in New York and obviously, but I'm just saying you know, outside of the elite precincts, you know, working class and lower income men and, you know, plenty of middle income men as well are, are really struggling. Um, And and their kids, their boys are struggling. And so I think we have to figure out, you know, ways to sort of reform, you know, education um, and even the economy to be more um, kind of male friendly because um, we need, you know, guys to be uh, thriving in our schools um, and thriving in in our labor force so that, you know, they're going to be, among other things, you know, decent providers and decent boyfriends and uh, good husbands and good fathers. Now, in terms of how men are doing as dads, well, I think, you know, again, in sort of the upper middle class homes, you know, I think which to be stably married, you know, dads are often more engaged than they've ever been, you know, historically speaking. And so that's that's all to the good. Um, but as you kind of go down the class ladder, as, as you know, uh, Robert, what we see is that they're, are large numbers of middle class, especially working class and poor families where dads are absent from the home and where they can't kind of give their kids, including especially their their sons, the kind of um, attention and modeling that increases the odds that those boys will flourish. And have seen work done by David Autor, for instance, at MIT um, and by Raj Chetty as well at Harvard, indicating that young men from working class middle class, poor families, you know, raised without their dads are struggling more in both, you know, in school and in the labor force as well.
2: When I listen to you talk that way, and and I've heard this, and I know this work, and I've worked in this, I've done more dad programs than anybody and and helping get fathers involved in children's lives. But um, I'm thinking of Jordan Peterson. I just want to have a little break here. What is your take on his attractiveness and his his message, Uh, you know, he's, he's, he's had quite a big run. Then he sort of took a hiatus for a while, but he's out there. And are you a Jordan Peterson fan? And, and, and what do you take on that?
1: Yeah, Robert, it's a great question. You know, I, I was talking to a guy um, at my local fitness center um, who runs the sort of the um, the coffee bar and somehow actually someone else was there and she was mentioning Jordan Peterson and his eyes just lit right up. And uh, this guy turns out he's a, a young uh, single dad, um, and just acknowledged it. He was he was kind of really struggling with kind of his path in life, and he started listening to Jordan Peterson, and you know has been really inspired by Peterson to kind of you know, to you know metaphorically make his bed in the morning. Um, pull and up your get socks, his, my father. Yeah, saying, pull up right. your
2: socks. <laughs>
1: get get his life together. He's going to go hear Jordan Peterson speak later this month in Washington D.C. I mean he's. He's not conservative, he's not religious, but he kind of was just looking for someone to kind of give him some direction about how to live his life, how to be a man. And I think, unfortunately, in our culture today, there there are too few voices that are giving young men and teenage boys a kind of constructive, concrete message about masculinity. So I think, you know, Jordan Peterson has had a lot of, you know, good advice that he's dished out to our teenage boys and to our young men, and and I'm grateful to him for that. I think the main area where I would disagree with or say that he's kind of fallen short is his message. I think is too individualistic. Yeah. Um, it's all about kind of what you've got to do to, you know, kind of pull yourself up by your own bootstraps. And I think we have to acknowledge and appreciate that, you know, our civic institutions, our families, uh, even our public policies, kind of need to be revamped in ways to sort of strengthen. Um, yeah, you would never
2: yeah. hear from Jordan Peterson. Well, you know these individuals are struggling and what it needs is another tax credit or we just got to get them more money. And and that, that would not be his shtick. I don't believe. Um,
1: Exactly. But right. But I think, you know, you know, speaking just personally for a second, I think, you know I'm, I'm Catholic and I've certainly heard, you know, guys in my world kind of call me to account on any number of fronts, right. In terms of like getting my act together, you know, to do X or Y or Z, you know, better. So I, I think that sort of the social piece, right, is not adequately articulated in Jordan Peterson's yeah. writing and speaking. We all we all need kind of a, a community to sort of wrap around us to be better boys and better
2: men. OK, so last question, then we'll finish in, on this. But, but so now let's go back to the, the, the low income, the, you know, not middle class, but poor community in outside Richmond or in Richmond or near Charlottesville, I presume. And individuals that are receiving families, probably single-parent families, because they're largely, we're talking about poverty neighborhoods. Um, they are receiving various forms of government assistance. Um, and um, and then there's these other institutions that are in the community. Just take 100 of those single-parent families. What percent of them are, are connected to a religious organization or a civic, society, civic entity? that's providing them leadership and guidance and help?
1: Yeah, that's a good question, Robert. I mean, I would say, you know, um, and and Charlottesville actually is a very diverse town, you know, um, economically and racially. Um, So I could think here about Charlottesville, for instance, and, you know, I've lived um, in a variety of neighborhoods in Charlottesville. Um, So I I would say, thinking about lower income um, families in town who've got, you know, some kind of well, anyways, I would say you know probably anywhere between one and ten and, and two and ten of those families would have some kind of regular connection to um, to a church or some kind of other meaningful community organization. Uh, it's also, of course, important to note too that when it comes to the most vulnerable people here in Charlottesville, um, you know our local um, sort of religious institutions do a lot of work with the homeless. Um, but in terms of kind of like the more formative piece, you were I think kind of getting at, I would say between ten and twenty percent.
2: And yet, but 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 the percent of those who are getting SNAP or um, uh, some form of government assistance is
1: very high, ninety yeah. percent. Right? I mean, yeah, ex- the vast majority. No now, doubt. my
2: point only on that is is that is that the, the messaging part and the and the modeling part about work, about marriage, about family, about fathers. If you want to send that message, you you the government is a place to send it through because that's the one that's connected. That's that's where you're going to be able to talk to these families in an effective way and sort of saying, well, we're not going to promote marriage in those programs because, you know, we're not supposed to do that. Or we're not going to promote work in those programs because someone else will do that. It's a little naive because if you're not, if you don't take this advantage, this opportunity, it's not going to be taken up by someone else.
1: Yeah, Robert. I think that's correct. I think, of course, the challenge here is how well can government do that, right? And I think they're you know, in terms of their, um, you know, the concern here is that both the government in general and the people who are kind of on the front lines I may mean, not always best positioned to kind of deliver the kinds of constructive messages that need to be articulated to help people.
2: You yeah, know, make but if you, if you say you can't get a benefit, or if you unless you work at least a little, that yes. that message gets conveyed. And one of the things I've been struck by is the outcomes for in poor families between girls and boys. Young women and girls are doing much better, as you said. And my th- thought is they're doing that because they have a model in their mother who's working, who's struggling, who's doing everything she can. Right. The boys just don't have that. But if you make if you take the mother's modeling of work and, and effort and, and, and striving away, then then both groups are going to be doing bad. So I just really feel that work is an important value to promote in, in all families.
1: Yeah, I mean, I, I think up to a point, that's correct. Um, and, you know, I'm open, you know, to the kind of, I think, maybe revisions you might propose to child tax credit that Orrin Cass has also kind of made a similar point in his family income supplemental credit as well. So on that particular question, I'm open, you know, for new proposals to kind of, you know, think about this. Um, I think we're, you know, the right now needs to be more aggressive. And I think where some of our colleagues at AI have not been as aggressive is just sort of appreciating that there has been a kind of relatively stagnant economic story playing out for working and middle-class families. And also that too many of our less educated men, men who are not college educated, have been struggling both in school and in the new economy. And we're not going to go back to 1955. I, I understand and appreciate that, but we can't be blind to the need to get our boys and men more um, powerfully connected to school and work, and that's to that's to their benefit, to any families that they might form, their benefit, and to our country's benefit, because we have large numbers of young men who are not connected to work, uh, marriage, family, you know, religious or secular institutions. We all know that spells, you know, from from history. That spells disaster. So I think we've got to be a lot more intentional on the right about thinking about this kind of male problem, a problem that Nicholas Eberstadt obviously has underlined, and about constructive measures we can take to reintegrate, you know, our, our teenage boys and young men, uh, and then also kind of, you know, I do see among the women that I speak to here, at UVA, for instance, there's often a frustration with the lack of, um, you know, they think that a lot of the guys here, not of course, not all um don't kind of demonstrate a kind of clear purpose a clear direction lack drive and are unable to commit you know to a serious relationship so you know we have to sort of I think revisit our approach to men and masculinity in ways that would make um for a, a better world a more just world I want to that I think a lot of women would would more appreciate as well
2: so this is banter, and I want to give the uh, last word on on that topic <laughs> to my banter partner Phoebe. And she, <laughs> you, you know, do you how do you react to the, all of that?
0: Perfect cue on the mediocrity of men. <laughs> <laughs> uh, no, no, no. But um, I, I'm curious to just hear a little bit more about. I mean, Robert covered the the government program side, but culturally, especially because you're kind of on the front lines at UVA talking to students. What cultural changes could be made to encourage marriage or to kind of make the case for the benefits of marriage to people that young people that are increasingly career oriented? Like you said, have you seen that change over time or what do you think would be helpful?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think part of the, the sort of challenge, Phoebe, is just to kind of get the science out. I mean, obviously, I think our schools and parents, you know, you know are overwhelmingly focused on college and career. And so, like the vast majority of students that I speak with, have heard from their parents or gotten message from their parents that they should not be thinking about a serious relationship at UVA, but they should just focus on school and work in the next decade of their lives. Um, and I think no one recognizes or realizes that that might not be the best strategy for you know for them, particularly if they meet someone who's a good you know partner, a good prospect in college or in their young twenties. You know, so um, I think kind of trying to get people to realize and appreciate that you know, 20-something marriage is fine if you find someone who's mature, obviously, um, and and a good friend, a good partner. Um, So that's part of, I think, the challenge, but also kind of letting them understand and appreciate, again, research that I've done, research that's done at Harvard, just indicating that when it comes to people's happiness and their sense of meaning in life, that family and friends end up being a lot more important for us um, than, you know, than education, work, and money. And so I think a lot of young adults are misinformed about kind of what you know, ultimately matters for them down the road, and we could do a better job both in terms of the science, but also in terms of the stories that we tell, you know, in the pop culture, um, you know, about kind of the merits of marriage. So, for instance, Phoebe, I would also say like a lot of the shows that I see on TV, for instance, 20-somethings are depicted as, you know, um, single or dating or living together, um, but rarely married with kids. And so there's a kind of a message that's sort of going out from, you know, from Hollywood, too, that is isn't conducive to sort of getting people to think about, you know, forming families in their 20s. I think we could kind of hopefully encourage uh, this is a tall order, I know, but, you know, people in 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 Hollywood and Southern California to do a better job of depicting, you know, the the lives of 20 somethings who are married with kids um, who actually we know empirically are more likely to be flourishing than their peers who are not um, not married. Um, mm-hmm. yeah, with kids,
0: yeah. At least they are realistic in that most of them are not very happy in those shows. <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah, <Sorry. laughs> yeah, that's that's true. Yeah.
0: Well, I've I've
2: enjoyed this conversation, Brad. Do you want to say anything more that you didn't, would have wanted to say that uh, that while well, we've got you uh, that we left on set?
1: Yeah, Robert. You know, one more thing. You know, we uh, we released a report this. Past fall at AEI um, on the divided state of reunions, and this was a report too that was you know picked up by our colleague Yvonne Levine in his Levine I mean, in his um, in his writing as well, and it was you know making I think two points. One is that one of the new problems I think facing us is not just sort of family breakdown, but the lack of family formation you know to begin with. That's sort of a new problem that some of us are worried about. Um, you know. Um, on the right, broadly defined. But I think another thing that kind of came out in this report is that we're seeing this growing kind of cultural and political divide, I think potentially emerging when it comes to both getting married and having children, particularly having kids, where more conservative young adults and uh, more religious young adults are comparatively more family-oriented. Uh, more willing to think about getting married and having kids. Um, And by contrast, more progressive and secular adults are, you know, more hesitant, more cautious about both marriage and parenthood. So we've seen a divide, you know, along these sort of ideological and religious lines since the 70s in this country. But I think
2: we may be on the verge of a kind of more of of a chasm um, if, well, we already talked about the chasm in family formation between highly educated and low educated, and you're saying a new one is developing exactly, by, right. by division, by politics.
1: And religion.
2: That is a big issue. And, and,
1: so, yeah, I think the, the, the question I have, and it's, it's a question, it's, it's an honest question, is whether or not, I mean, as you said, a lot of elite folks have you know been articulating very progressive ideas on family, but they haven't been doing it in their own lives. But I, I, what I wonder is if young adults today who are attending kind of progressive schools or hearing progressive messages um, from, you know, their parents and, and media and, and social media, may um, actually kind of, you know, start using the product, so to speak, right? And, you know, maybe as a consequence, much less likely to get married and have kids than their own parents were. And that would be, I think, a really new development in the American social scene. Yeah. So I'm, I'm following that issue, looking at that in some new polling this coming year.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah, that 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 is a that, that's you know again. Um, that's worth following carefully. I I was gonna you know you always try to relate to your personal life. I am very lucky. I have two married sons under under twenty eight, uh, and so, and their spouses are under twenty eight too. And so, it that hasn't um, I've seen the, and a lot of them are getting married. But you're right. If if the, the, that's just anecdotal, if the facts are that this sort of Postponement of that until you're set. It's it's they're getting. It's the capstone thing, isn't it? Kind of a recreation of the capstone. Explain to our audience the capstone theory. Right. Again.
1: So you know, when, when my mom came of age in the '60s, there was a cornerstone model. You would get married in your early 20s. Um, when I came of age, and, and people today are coming of age, it's a capstone model where people are getting married in their late 20s and early 30s. You know, after they've gotten their, you know, their education and work well underway. Um, and I think you know one thing I would certainly advocate for is kind of being more open to a cornerstone model where you're kind of getting married. You know, again, assuming you find someone who's a good, a good partner, mature, um, you know, great friend. Um, you know, being open to kind of the cornerstone model uh, for for those. And the who
2: cornerstone are, is a building block of your life when you really yeah, haven't right. got it all figured out, or you don't exactly. think you do, and you're yeah. taking a chance. But a capstone means it's all I've got. I'm I'm, I'm all fine now. I can. Get married. Uh, you sometimes you depress me, Brad, I've gotta say. you Bring me down. You bring me down.
1: But <laughs> okay. uh,
2: we'll we'll uh, we'll 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 find solutions for these problems and and move forward.
1: Great. Thanks
0: guys. Thanks to me. Thanks, Robert. Thank you. Thank you for listening. We hope you enjoyed the discussion today. Please remember to subscribe and rate the podcast. Feel free to send us any feedback or suggestions at banter at AEI.org.